You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Leviticus 1. Leviticus 1. Uh, Get your Bible there. If you're not familiar with where it is, it's the third book in your Bible. We have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and what comes next? Somebody tell me. Numbers and then Deuteronomy. These first five books are often called the Pentateuch or the Torah, and they're written by Moses. They're really one kind of large book with five different chapters, uh, though we have it broken down uh, much smaller there. Now, we're into this book now, but you may remember that a year ago we finished preaching Exodus. And so we're really just kind of coming back to this story here. We took a break to do Colossians and Philemon and some other things in the midst of this Romans 8. But we're now picking back up in the story of God's people in the Pentateuch. And if you've joined us since then and become part of our church family, you can find all those messages from Exodus there online. But uh, let me just kind of bring us all back to where Exodus ends. You remember that? Exodus ends on a high note. It's a new era in their history, in their life. It's similar, though, much, on a much grander scale. In the era that we're in right now, as a new school year begins, and some of you are starting middle school or high school for the very first time or heading off to college, and there's a lot of excitement. And for the Israelites in this season here, the excitement was high. The enthusiasm was through the roof. Why? Because the tabernacle had been constructed. The tent of meeting where God had promised to come and dwell had been, uh, had been now built. They had given of their resources, their gold and their materials that were necessary to construct this beautifully ornate structure. And God had given the plans for how it should be built. You may remember all those chapters where God, over the course of many chapters, tells them how it should be built and all the things and the measurements that were like, this is super confusing, and then it actually gets built. But more importantly than just the plans, he gives the promise also that he would dwell with them, that he would be their God and he would be their people. And so the entire book of Exodus is really just speeding uh, towards this moment. It's as if the book of Exodus ends and he's like, why did the Lord deliver them from their slavery in Egypt? As horrific as it was, why did the Lord preserve them through the judgments? Why did he rescue them through the Red Sea as Pharaoh and his armies were bearing down upon them? Why did he provide food and water for them in the wilderness? Why did he make this covenant and give them these statutes which to live by? And why then does he relent from uh, his judgment and his wrath and anger and extend mercy to them when they just build this golden calf and spit in his face? It is so that he would be their God and he, they would be his people. All of this is happening so that his name would be glorified throughout the entire earth. All of this was to make God famous. And he promises to dwell among these people to receive the glory that is due him. And yet, as high and as enthusiastic as they are, they have a massive problem. Their sin keeps them from his presence. 
That's how Exodus ends, and it's where Leviticus picks up. They have this tabernacle. God is dwelling there in their midst, and yet they might as well be as far away in Texas as they are from him there in the promised land. And see, here's the main point then of Leviticus as Exodus ends. It brings us to this main point of the entire book that God graciously makes a way for his people to be in his presence. You can write that down in your notes. You can put it at the beginning of your Bible there. At the, if you're into writing notes in your Bible, just write this down so you know uh, this is what the book of Exodus is all about. God, or The book of Leviticus, rather, is all about God graciously makes a way for his people to be in his presence, to be near to him. And let me just show you this. You know that I'm not just uh, making this up out of nowhere. Uh, write that down. But look at your Bible and actually go to the end of, Levit- or the end of Exodus here. I'm going to get this right. Exodus, Leviticus. Bear with me here. If I mix it up, just shout it out and correct me. It'll be okay. But the end of Exodus, chapter 40, verse 34, just look at this here, because it's really one continuation. We're going to go from the end here and then into Leviticus. But just look at this. Listen here. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filling. It's God is there dwelling amongst them. But verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till that day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now that's really a summary of the book of Numbers, y'all. That's what will happen. He'll come back to that. But in the meantime, now look at Leviticus 1.1. It's just a continuation. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... We're going to come back to this in just a second. But let me... I set the scene there because what's happening here? Where is Moses? In the scene, in the passage that we just read, where is he? Not like literally like he's in the wilderness, but where is he in the scene? What details do we have? He is outside the tent. And where is the Lord? Inside the tent. Moses is outside God's presence. He can't get in. Why? Because God is holy. Because God is holy and set apart. He is unique in everything. And thus everything around him must also be holy. Any sort of unholiness, uncleanness cannot come near him. In order then to be for people to be near him, they must too be holy. And all of Leviticus, the entirety of the law is really to show this to us. It'll use terms like clean and unclean, really symbolically of our holiness or our unholiness. And so all the things that God is talking about, clean and unclean, think holy and unholy. And so all of Leviticus then is about this. All of Leviticus then is how do we get inside? How then will we be holy? How can we be in God's presence when this is the case? And All of Leviticus is about God's gracious invitation to come and be holy. Thus the series title, Come and Be Holy. It's actually an invitation. This isn't like Leviticus and all the laws. It's not like some test from the Lord. Let's see, like, can they do it? Ah, Like, I'm going to give them all this stuff and let's see. Let's, Let's test them to see if they can really do it. God already knows the answer, and I think we already know the answer as well. It's impossible. 
yet it is God's gracious invitation to come in, to come and be near him. And so all of Leviticus has a structure like this. I put it up on the screen here. You can take a picture of this. We'll also send it out in emails and things this week and post it on our socials. But I put this here together. Taylor uh, was able to put this into a concept here for me that I think is super helpful as we think about the structure of Leviticus. And many of you have even asked, how are you going to preach all this book in four weeks? This is how. Because I think once we understand the structure and the flow of how this is written, we will understand it. It will make way more sense to us. And so today we're going to cover that outer ring. Because everything in the book of Leviticus is leading us to actually the center of the book, to chapter 16 and 17, in the Day of Atonement. But, the, but the, the, all, everything around it is leading us to that, to the point where we're going to talk about today, to we're not holy. And then all, what do we do with all the priests? And it's as if they're saying, like, well, how do we get a holy guy in there? And the spoiler alert, they're like, well, we can't. <laughs> They fail at it too. Okay, well, what's the requirements for getting in perfect purity? Well, who can do that? We need a substitute, a perfect substitute, an innocent person in there taking our sin. And so today we take the problem, the outer ring. And it really begins and ends on this note in the book of Leviticus. And so this is why I say have our Bibles ready because we're going to cover 12 chapters today, the first seven and the last five. We're going to fly over it and we're going to look at the pertinent uh, uh, passages in each of these as we go. But it is leading us, all of these chapters here, is leading us to this uh, thing that our sin separates us from God. Or we could say it this way. If you're taking notes, here's the main point of our passage today, of this outer ring. And it's this, is that we are not holy. Write this down, put it in your notes here, put it, all uh, what, what is being established for us. What is, what is the overarching theme and the, the, the note that is being struck over and over here is that in and of ourselves, we have this massive problem. We are not holy and our sin has created this separation between us and God. For we've already established that God is what? God is holy. He is set apart and unique in every way. And this is the unifying theme of the scriptures. The, the, the Psalms, the prophets, and the New Testament all speak to the holiness of God. Just listen to a few of the examples. Psalm 99.9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Or 1 Samuel 2.2, 2, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Or Peter will pick up this theme in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That in itself is a quotation from Leviticus eleven forty five. 45. So the outer edges of, of Leviticus, this outer ring here, really overwhelm us with the reality that we are not holy. This is the point of those first seven chapters. The, all the offerings that we're going to look at here a little bit closer here, all the offerings in chapters 1 through 7 teach us this, that we need constant forgiveness. Because we are not holy, because our sin separates us from God, we need this constant forgiveness. Come back to Leviticus in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And let me just read this for you so you can see it here. 
See, God is speaking to Moses from the tent, and this is what he says. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now see here, church, here's the need. We are not holy and the need is to be accepted by God, accepted into his presence. And so how does this happen here? Right from the beginning of Leviticus, we, have, we establish the problem outside of God's presence, but what we need is God's acceptance to come near to him. And how does that happen? Through these offerings, through, these, uh, through giving up of the resources that God had given them, typically through, as we'll see, through produce, and through, uh, through their livestock here. And they would take it and uh, through the various uh, offerings and the things that were given, in, in a sense it was transferring their guilt, our human guilt, our uncleanness or holiness, unholiness onto this innocent or without blemish, this perfect uh, or, you know, innocent substitute here. And by the laying on of hands as a symbol of a transfer of my guilt onto this offering onto this sacrifice. And in so doing, they're really telling the Lord two things. They're asking for forgiveness, and they are telling the Lord, thank you. Asking for forgiveness and telling the Lord, thank you. They're grateful for all this. And so really, if you were to sum up all the offerings in chapters 1 through 7, you could put them really kind of loosely into these two categories. Those that ask forgiveness the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, really described in chapters 1, 4, 5, 6, and 7, and those that show thankfulness, the grain and peace offerings of chapters 2 and 3. Much like we do today, but they had all these different ways and for different scenarios in their life, those that would say, God, we are sorry, and those that say, God, we are thankful. Thankful for who you are. The thankful ones really come from their provision. They produced grains and animals that they had, and they would bring a portion to tell the Lord, thank you for this. And you'll really see a pattern in these. We're going to read a section in chapter 2 here in just a minute, but you'll see a pattern as you read through them, as they bring something to tell the Lord thank you, and then also some is reserved for the provision of the priests to, in a sense, tell them thank you, for they were set apart for their service to stand in their gap and service to the Lord and to God's people. And so they would come and they would bring these, uh, these, uh, these things to the Lord. So join me in chapter 2 at the very beginning. Uh, offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. And anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Right? Some of those like essential oils that we use today, right? They're pouring oil, frankincense, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. You shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. There's that, right? A sacrifice of praise, telling God, thank you for this harvest that we've had. But then in verse 3, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. Who's Aaron? Moses' brother, the high priest, those that would serve the Lord from the tribe of Levi. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. 
And now it just gets down into the details, right? You bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering. It shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened water wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a, a, a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. What's all that? Well, it's just like the difference between like a loaf of bread, a tortilla, and, uh, and some cornbread, right? So we're in all the details. We're like, what is going on here? But it's really just the difference in that. And whatever it is that is being brought to the Lord, what are they telling the Lord in this? What do we tell our kids? Did you say, thank you? So they're coming to the Lord to say, Thank you. Thank you for providing for me in this way. Thank you for bringing the rains. Thank you for causing the growth. But there are also other types of offerings, offerings that tell the Lord or ask the Lord for forgiveness. They come from a repentant heart, needing to cover our sin, whether it's unintentional or intentional. And these, the different rules and laws differ depending upon who committed them. Just look in chapter 4 for a second as we come to these, uh, uh, these sin offerings, right? They're at the beginning in verse 2 it's, and, and verse 3, it's these, these instructions for offerings if the priests sin. If he sins unintentionally and doesn't know what he's doing here, look at what it says. Speak to the people of Israel. This is chapter 4, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally, right? Those things that we do, look at for just a second, those things that we do in ignorance things that we don't know, just like childish, we're young, we're immature. They're like, oh, I didn't know that this was a rule. I didn't know that this was a part of following the Lord or, you know, and kind of civil laws, all that. It's like, oh, I didn't know that you can't make, you know, right turns on red here or something like that. The things that are happen unintentionally and yet are still offensive. And so God makes a way for forgiveness, first for the priests and then look for if the group sins, jump down to 4.13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, the sin which they have committed becomes known. The assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in the front of the tent of meeting. And so you have in the earlier ones, I know I cut it off there, but the it's the same kind of thing for the priest, for the congregation, or the whole group. Or you jump to verse 22. When a leader sins, somebody with influence, there's a, a, a way for a leader to say, we're sorry and to ask forgiveness. And then verse 27, as you come down, uh, a common person. Not because of any sort of devaluation for him, just a way to delineate between those who lead and those who follow here. But if a common person sins unintentionally, there are uh, things to do in order to tell the Lord sorry. And in each of these things, as they bring an animal, they lay their hands on the animal as a symbol, as this is a substitute for me. This innocent goat or bull or Whatever animal it might be, it is a transfer of the guilt onto the head of this animal. See, we have to come to the Lord and tell him we're sorry. But there is an end goal in all this. An end goal, what is it? To be accepted by the Lord. But look how it says in, uh, in chapter 5. Jump over here because I, I want you to see this because there's lots more here of what they, if they can't afford it, if, they, if certain uh, scenarios. And so God cares about the details and all this, but it's leading towards the end goal in chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone sins, kind of the summary statement of it all. 
If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, there's a responsibility, even if you don't uh, fully understand what it's all about. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. See, this is the end goal. This is what all of these uh, are teaching us here. All the offerings all, and, and all the, the, the things that we don't know and we, and, we, and, and, and we do them and the things that we do know and we do them anyways here, it is leading us to a place of forgiveness, of pardon for our sin, the sins that we didn't realize until God graciously makes them aware. But what about the things that are done intentionally? Right, those things that we have the sins of, of like ignorance that we do unintentionally, but what about the things that we know we're not supposed to do and we do it anyway? Sins of rebellion or foolishness here. Well, chapters 6 and 7 lay all out a, a variety of scenarios here about what they're to do and, and what happens in these scenarios. And here's the thing, even though that we can get inundated with all these laws, really they are not even exhaustive in all the things. They're just case studies to say, in this situation, do this, and in this situation, do this. And if it's like this, here are the cues that you take in order to tell the Lord that we're sorry or that we are thankful but the whole purpose in all of these things are really is, is to just lead us to that, that we need constant forgiveness. That's why as you get to the end in chapter 7 here, or chapter 6 rather, come and see this. In chapter 6, in these instructions to the priests in 6, 12, and 13, look what it says. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Why? Think of the temple. They're coming. You have the Holy of Holies where God dwells, where the... the, the uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is, and then outside you have this Ark and the priests. What they are doing constantly is keeping those fires going. Why? Because we are in need of constant forgiveness. To show the Israelites as they uh, come, they want to meet with Him. They want to be in His presence. They have to reckon with this truth that they are unclean or not holy and need forgiveness. And so these fires are kept burning so that as they realize this, they could come and make their offering before the Lord. And here's the thing, y'all, the sheer volume that we have just wrapped up in chapter 7, and as you widen out and look at the Pentateuch, the sheer volume of these offerings should overwhelm us. In a sense, it should lull us to sleep. It should cause us to wrestle like with who could possibly keep all of these rules. But beloved, that's the whole point. It's impossible. It's impossible in and of ourselves. We are not holy. We need constant forgiveness. Our sin is so great and, and we really can't even comprehend the full extent of it. Though we aren't under these Levitical laws anymore, sometimes following Jesus seems daunting as well, doesn't it? 
you know, that command to be holy because God is holy seems like it is out of reach. Our pursuit of holiness, you know, like we're following Jesus, we're rocking along, we think it's awesome, and then bam, we're tempted. Like it's like, oh, okay, we're good, good, and then this temptation comes and we give in, we believe the lie that the sin has told us, and we give in, and then despair, we get discouraged, we wonder, is this even worth it? Or maybe we're just rocking along. We think, man, this is good. We're following Jesus. And, and, uh, and we come to small group and, you know, we think like, well, I don't have any sin to confess. I don't have anything. And then one of our brothers or sisters points out, you know, as, uh, as we're talking about these things, he says, well, hey, like, I've noticed this kind of pattern in how you speak to your spouse. Or I've, I've noticed this, uh, the, these things that you've been posting on social media. Like, tell me about that. where you're still in constant need of forgiveness. Daily, moment by moment, our sin is great. We can't even comprehend the full extent of it all. See, not only do we not know all the things that we do, some of the things that we do know, we're forgetful, aren't we? See, here's the, the second point. As it comes to the end of Leviticus, it brings us to this, that we are spiritually forgetful. Write this down. Not only do we need constant forgiveness, but all the feasts, all the festivals in chapters 23 to 25 teach us this, that we are spiritually forgetful. And so flip over here. We've taken the beginning, but remember, it's working towards the middle. And so really 1 through 7 and and 23 through 27, the final five chapters, really form the outer edge of this point here, of the problem that we have. And so go over there, like I said, Chapter 23 here. And God gives these, not only these ongoing offerings that we see at the beginning, but these daily or weekly, uh, now the daily ritual offerings to now the weekly and annual and even uh, uh, out there for uh, future ritual feasts and festivals. See, God knew that his beloved, his uh, people Israel had their limits. Even with the best of intentions, even with the most uh, 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 strong of resolve, they were easily distracted, easily fearful, and especially forgetful. They needed reminders, not only the ongoing reminders to repent and tell God thank you, but also the reminders of who God is, his character, what he had done, his past work to keep them moving forward in faith or to keep them moving inward towards his presence. And this is why he gives the feasts and the festivals. It's not so much in in, in just the keeping them and the details, though this is important. But they really serve a bigger purpose to remind them of who God is and points them forward. And so join me in in chapter 23 and just see this here, because he begins with a, a weekly remembrance, the Sabbath, tying back to creation, but that ongoing reminder that we are the creatures and God is the creator. That we have limits and God in his love for us created us and gave us this. It's our weekly reminder that God is in control. Our weekly reminder that uh, God is the one worthy of our worship. The Sabbath reminder for them was to be this reset for them in the ongoing busy survival that they had in the wilderness and ongoing 
Then he says, not only that you need these weekly reminders, but here's seven annual reminders. And that's what all the feasts are about. The feasts of the Passover, looking back to their time in Israel, appointing them to God's deliverance as in that last judgment, the death of the firstborn, when, uh, uh, when they would slaughter an innocent lamb and take its blood and pass, put it over their doorposts. And as the angel of death swept through the land, they were passed over emerged from there and were then released into the wilderness. God delivered them. And closely related to the feast of the Passover is this other one, the feast of unleavened bread, a reminder of God's provision for them, his deliverance and haste as they made this bread without the yeast, not giving it the time to rise, but making it and sending them on their way. They ate it then and they take, took it and kept it and ate it along the way. The next one, the Feast of first fruits, is again a, a reminder of God's provision. Every time in the harvest, those fruits that first came, they brought them as a remembrance to the Lord, as an offering to tell the Lord, thank you. Thank you. Here is our first and our best, which we bring to the Lord. For all of it belongs to Him as well. The Feast of Weeks, then, as you're just following along with me here, hopefully here in chapter 23, verse 15, after seven full weeks, or the 49th or the 50th day, this is also known as Pentecost here, again, a reminder of God's continual provision. He gets the first and the best, but He is also providing all along the way. The Feast of Trumpets, this day of celebration, remembering God's rest and what He has done, looking forward to a new day and the Day of Atonement in verse 26 here. Again, looking back, looking back to God's atoning work, the need for a sacrifice. Looking here again to chapter 16 and 17, which we'll come to. And a final one, the Feast of Booths or the Tabernacles, God's promise to them, God's protection of them, looking back for when they dwelt in tents in the wilderness. Here, it'd be an ongoing reminder of God's deliverance and provision for all their needs. See, that's really what all these are coming down to. And if we boil it down, it's the, that they would remember God has delivered them and provided for them all along the way. Yet the brilliance behind it all, however, isn't that these were just reminders of past historical events, like our holidays, right? Like we celebrate July 4th as a reminder of what? American independence, right? We declared our independence from Britain, right? And any of the other holidays that we have. See, these weren't just like these holy days, these reminders of God's password, but they were all pointing ahead to a greater reality as well. See the wisdom of God in not only keeping them attached to God's password and his character there, but also pointing to a greater day, a greater fulfillment. See, each of these are foreshadows of a coming Messiah. Of a, of a greater spiritual reality as these would be fulfilled. And we know him as, who is the Messiah? We know him as Jesus. Jesus, the Passover lamb, sacrificed for our sins. Jesus, the bread of life, his body broken so that we uh, would, uh, in, in uh, taking the consequence for us and feeding us uh, as we go. Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers, the first and the best, the exalted one amongst God's great and vast family. Jesus, the one who will ascend uh, into, who did ascend into heaven and is coming back with a shout and the blast of a trumpet. See, this church is a pointer, a foreshadowing, even as we read these, to a greater reality in Christ. It's pointing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the problem that we all have too because we are not holy. We need constant forgiveness. We uh, are spiritually forgetful. And yet God made a way that we might see Christ. Repenting, telling God we're sorry, and believing on Christ, telling Him thank you for His atoning sacrifice. And as we do so, we might be saved. To walk in newness of life. To know the grace and mercy of God. So all of these things, though, attached to the past, they're pointing to a greater reality, a greater fulfillment in Christ. And so each of these, each of these has great meaning. Even as we get to, it goes on in the preparations in chapter 24, the lamps and the bread showing the detail to which God cares about all these things. Now, what I I fear in doing, uh, preaching through it this way is that you might get the impression that the details of Leviticus don't matter. They matter, right? Write that in your notes. The details of Leviticus matter, even if we're not covering every single verse and every single uh, piece in Leviticus. And my hope for you as we uh, go through this over the next month, that you will read through the book of Leviticus at least twice. At least twice, especially as you see what God is doing and you will begin to see the grace and mercy of God through the details because he does care about it. He cares about how the lamps are prepared and how the bread is prepared in preparation for all this. He cares about our hearts, even as you get into chapter 24 and why God is so particular about our love for him and our love for others and our love for the poor and why there's drastic consequences if you take a human life, right? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is in verse 19, 24, 19. Because it's like we don't just you know, treat God's creation and God's image bearers with contempt and then think we can traipse into his presence or to remember these things. See, we still need it. We still need God's help. So even though we have these daily reminders, these daily offerings, these annual reminders, these uh, ongoing things. There's also something even into the future as we get into chapter 25 and another festival uh, too in the Sabbath year, every seven years, this uh, letting the land rest. And after seven uh, uh, sets of seven years in the 50th year, this year of Jubilee, this forward thinking, this uh, day that is yet to come that everybody knew whether it's be property or people where everything would be reset and redemption would happen. And what a reminder for God's people, even as we look forward. Sometimes, even for them, you get just uh, buried in the details of life. Their ongoing survival, the, uh, we, got, you know, we have crops to, to tend to and animals to attend to and people that we're managing and things, and we get in these life situations, and what a joy to know that a day would be coming, whether it was a year later or 49 years later, there would be a day where God would make everything new. Annual reminder of hope, or an ongoing reminder of hope. What is what true for us now that while we are even free today, our eternal redemption awaits. It all belongs to God. We belong to God. He is our God. But as a spiritually forgetful people, we need these reminders constantly, don't we? It looks different for us today, does it not? It looks different for us. God has graciously uh, given us the rhythmic reminders that we have too, starting each week with worship 
As we're doing here now, as we just come before the Lord and we make these commitments to just give the first and the best of our week to the Lord, our time, talent, and treasure. As we have these daily offerings of praise to the Lord, a time in His Word, and time in prayer, meeting with Him, those midweek reminders that we need as a small group, as we don't want to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also, and go deeper in our understanding, more specific in our application. The regular reminders that God has given us through baptism of the spiritual, that we were dead in our sin and buried and made alive with Christ and communion as we look to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and those annual reminders that we have of Good Friday and Christ's sacrifice and, uh, and Easter Sunday of Christ's resurrection and Christmas even of Christ's incarnation and even our church anniversary coming up. Why do we celebrate this? Why do we make much of this to like pat ourselves on the back to be like, yes, we've done it? As our annual reminder that God is at work, Jesus is fulfilling his promise to build his church and every year we need to stop and pause and say, look what God has done. Look what he's done. We're spiritually forgetful people. And so when we come to these things, we have to lean in and get all we can out of them. We can't just be going through the motions and the rhythmic reminders that God has given us, but they're purposeful in the wisdom of God for us to teach us, to see the meaning behind the method, his character and his promises at work. These are his means of bringing us near of not letting us forget for too long, knowing that our sin separates us. See, all of these things are teaching us here. They're, they're just this reminder. We're not holy. We're forgetful people. We need constant forget, uh, or forgiveness. But the book ends then on this note, this reminder that we bear personal responsibility. Chapters 26 here uh, it really just kind of bring home for us that there are consequences for our obedience and our disobedience. It's how the book ends here. There's consequence of great reward for obedience, right? This, this, if, if the call to covenant faithfulness. Look what he promises to, to the Israelites here, to his people, right? Join me, chapter 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, right? Like if you walk according to my ways, look what he says. Then I will give you your rains and their seasons, all right? I'll provide for you. Follow me. I will provide the rain that you need. Verse 6. I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down. I will remove harmful beasts, right? Like, that, that's what we want. I will chase away your enemies. That's like, okay, that, you're going to take care of that. Wolves, other things aren't going to attack my livestock. Uh, other enemies aren't going to, you will protect me. Verse 9, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. This is what they were told in the Abrahamic covenant. Go, be fruitful and multiply and I will make a blessing uh, I make you a blessing. I will bless you and make you a blessing. Just to return to that, verse eleven. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God. That's what we want, right? We want God's provision. We want God's protection, and mostly we want His presence. This is why we follow the Lord. This is why we walk according to his ways. This is a part of his blessing. But look at verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if, my, if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. Who, who's speaking in, in this verse? 
Yeah, God is. The Lord is. And so, this is nothing to mess with, y'all, right? Like, if you're an Israelite, listen to this. Like, God is saying this. Like, well, the option seems to be pretty clear. The responsibility is ours. Are we going to obey the Lord or are we going to disobey the Lord? Look what he says, verse 16, 26, 16. Then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. Verse 17, I will set my face against you. You will be struck down before your enemies, right? Verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. All the things that God promises, his provision, his protection, and his presence, he will take it away. But notice that something happens here. Verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold. I will do this. So he continues to discipline them. But verse 23, and if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, and I will also walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And so it's just like getting worse by sevenfold. In verse 27, but if in spite of all this, and you still will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. Just keeps getting worse. What are we to make of all this? What do we make of the layers of warning? Well, God will give you over to the responsibility for your persistent sin. Continue to turn away from the Lord, and guess what? Continue to go your own way. Does it get any better? No. But don't miss this as well. While it is increasing in its severity, in the punishment, and the consequences, each of these warnings is an expression of grace. God, in his justice at any turn, could have just said, nope, done with this. And yet, layer after layer, warning after warning, is an expression of God's unmerited, undeserved grace for his people. That even at the worst disobedience, even when they've gone to kind of the bottom of rebellion and foolishness, look what he says in verse 40, chapter 26. It's all this, and you can read it, you can go through and, and be amazed at the severity up to this point. 2640, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If, they, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, and they make amends for the iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all of that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Church, there is no place, if you have breath in your lungs, 
person that you know walking in rebellion, there's breath in their lungs. They are not too far gone for the grace of God. We need forgiveness. We are spiritually forgetful. The, the weight that we bear our responsibility for our actions weighs heavy on us. But note this, it is in the strength of God's love that draws us near, not in our resolve, not in, in all of this. It is God who loves us and will not break his covenant. He goes back to his covenant faithfulness. He's calling them to covenant obedience, and he's saying, I am, co- I am faithful to this. I will outlast. My grace is, will, will, is far greater than the greatest of sin. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Even in our unholiness. The book ends in chapter 27, all this, with these vows and this resolve here. This, like, these things that we bring and dedicate to the Lord because we can get into the midst and, and, and miss this and miss the grace of God in this and the responsibility that we will bear apart from Christ. But the book ends, it's like, okay, we'll make these vows of people and all this, but even our best attempts... Even our best attempts still need offerings, still need instructions, still need help. In those moments where we're like, well, this time, God, I promise to do it. This time, God, I will, I'll do better. This time, God, I, I, won't, I won't give in to that. This time, God, I will. I... It's as if the book of Leviticus, we get to the end here, and we're left with this overwhelming uh, uh, realization and understanding that we are not holy. Even our best attempts, we can't do it. You get to the end of Leviticus here, and there's just more work, more responsibility for our sin that is just too much. We get to the end, and we're left with the enormity of our sin and our inability to fix it, and we wonder what in the world could fix it. But see, church, the solution isn't at the end. It's in the middle, where Christ is alive and holy, atoning as the sacrifice for our sin. It's in the middle where he is beckoning us to come to him. Such is the case in our life as well. We work and we strive and we struggle, just waiting to the end. And when we get to here, when I get to the end, the end of the school year, the end of the struggle, the end of the treatment, yet all along the answer isn't at the end. It's right there in the middle where Christ is, in the middle of it all. Look for him there, beloved. We walk through uh, Leviticus, and as we go deeper in, look for Christ in the center of it all. That's where he may be found. That's where he's beckoning us to come and be holy. Pray with me. God in heaven, here we are, confronted yet again with our complete inability with the enormity of all the things that we have to do to be holy, uh, uh, overwhelmed with all of this, God. And so we just come before you confessing that. Confessing all of our attempts to try and impress you. Confessing all of our attempts to try to earn your favor. And so we come before you just surrendered to you. come before you bracing this. We can't do it, but you have already done it. So help us to see it, God. 
Help us to see it, even as we wrestle with all this in our own life and that how we are sinners saved by grace, sinners in need of grace. Teach us, God. Show us. Make much of Christ in our eyes. Show us how to be holy. How to live in the enormity of all of this. And so what could we do as we close? What could we do but call and ask you to do that and to sing your praise, to delight in Christ this morning? It's in his name that we pray now.